This is the word of the Lord from 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, 1 through 12. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, for which you are also suffering, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed, because our testimony among you, who, among you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, Kendra. Corey Ten Boom knew what it meant to suffer for Jesus. I don't know if you know her story, but she, along with family members, helped hide Jews during the Holocaust. And after several months of hiding Jews in their home, uh, protecting them, setting up an elaborate system of uh, alerts and alarms and hidden walls, um, after some time, uh, they were found out, and Corey Tinboom was arrested. She was sent to prison for four months and then to a concentration camp. She lost her parents and sister in the concentration camps, but during that time, she did not lose faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, she was able to sneak a Bible into the concentration camp. And in fact, she described that as a miracle because they would search everyone as they were going into the line to the camp. And she saw the different people being searched. And so she tucked the Bible on the back of her neck up under her hair and prayed that God would send an angel to make her invisible to the guard searching her. And they searched the person in front, they searched the person behind, but they did not search her. So she was able to take the Bible into the concentration camp. And there, as she was suffering horribly at the hands of the guards, she still held a Bible study twice a day. In their barracks, a barracks that was designed for 200 people, They'd crowded in 700 ladies. And the flea and lice infestation 
made it almost unbearable. But she thanked God for the fleas and the lice because the guards refused to go into the barracks. And so they could have their Bible studies without interruption, without being uh, found out by the guards and punished. She was made to stand, they were made to stand in line in formation for three hours a day as they counted everyone in the concentration camp. She used that time to pray and ask God to send her the message for the Bible study that they will be doing that day. Over the years, or the time, excuse me, the seven months she was in uh, the concentration camp, she never lost hope. She prayed, she led the women to study God's word, and then the day came when they were released. They were set free. And she began to go around and continue to preach God's word. And the true sign that she had still remained faithful at one of her talks She noticed standing in the back of the room one of the guards from the concentration camp. And she had the opportunity to speak with him afterward and express forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Corey Ten Boom knew what it meant to suffer for Jesus. And so did the Thessalonian believers, which is what our passage is about today. If you've been with us for a few months, you know that we have been working through First and Second Thessalonians, and these are letters, epistles, that Paul wrote to the church, to those Thessalonian believers, as a way to encourage, to equip, and even to admonish them, to correct them, and to exhort them to continue to walk a path of faith in Jesus. And so this is the second of those letters, and it clearly states as the first that it was from Paul, from Silas, from Timothy, uh, to the church of the Thessalonians. And it's estimated that this was written around 50 AD. Now there's some wiggle room, a year or two on either side. What's interesting is that this letter was written in quick succession after the first one. That's not necessarily true with other letters that that Paul wrote to different churches, but apparently it seems that Paul wrote the first letter and it was sent to the Thessalonians and they read that and it was taught. And then those who sent or who delivered the letter or other connections from Paul immediately went back and reported about what was happening in the church and what the believers were feeling and thinking and how they were living And Paul felt the need to immediately write them another letter. And in fact, he addressed some of the same topics and and more forcefully. And so you'll see that as we go through this this, uh, book, this study, that Paul is covering again some of those same topics. And as I was thinking about that, it's like a parent. Either you are a parent or you had parents at some point. And you know what it means when a parent has to repeat themselves many times to drive home the point that the child needs to hear. So that's similar to what Paul was doing here with the Thessalonians. As Kendra was reading the passage, you probably noticed that a main focus of this passage had to do with persecution 
the persecution of the believers in Thessalonica. Now, if you want to hear more in depth about what that persecution was like, when we started this series, Pastor Aaron, the first sermon, he, he spoke about Paul's uh, experience in Thessalonica and how that translated to persecution with the believers. But essentially, those who were of the Jewish faith who had not turned to Christ, they were the ones who were angered by those preaching Jesus as the Messiah because they had rejected Jesus as Messiah. They refused to see that he was the Savior. And so they were angered at those believers. They stirred up the community and they brought the persecution against those believers. Those Thessalonian believers, as they were experiencing this persecution, they had some interesting thoughts on this. They thought that possibly this was the great tribulation that Jesus had said would come at the time of his coming. And so they began to think that maybe Jesus was about to come, and some thought he had already come because of the persecution that they were experiencing. And likely, they were asking this question, when will this persecution end? When will our suffering end? And the reason we think they might have asked this question is because Paul, he answered that question in these 12 verses. And so that's what we want to think about today. Well, one thing we know for sure is that persecution of believers has not ended in the world. More believers suffer persecution today than ever before. It seems hard to believe, especially for us living in America where we have freedom to practice our faith. We have freedom to read the Bible, to gather publicly, to share our faith with others. We have freedom of expression of our faith. But in many parts of the world, it's not true. According to uh, an Open Doors report from 2022, there was a, a study by, by the advocacy group Open Doors, and they said that at least 360 million Christians experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. And this was 20 million higher than the year before. This group estimated that the number of Christians killed for their faith rose to 5,898 in 2022, up from 4,761 in 2021. Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and, the, and Yemen saw the highest rates of persecution globally. The Pew Research Center also did a study of the number of countries in which Christians have been harassed, and they found that that rose every year from 2013 to 2019. And it turns out that it was, in that last study, 153 countries out of 198 that they studied. More believers are persecuted today than ever before. So clearly, persecution of believers is not ended yet. Now, 
as I mentioned, here in America and most Western countries, the idea of persecution is foreign to us. We don't experience persecution the same way as those in other parts of the country, or excuse me, of the world. In our country, mostly it would be social ostracizing. It might be ridicule. We might be dismissed by those that we uh, live among or try to share with. We might even be hated for our faith, especially for following the Bible and the principles in the Bible. Some in the country have had to face lawsuits and fight lawsuit battles because they stand on their, the principles of their faith and how they do business. But as of yet, in America, no persecution has reached the same level as other parts of the world. We don't know what the future holds for that. But Jesus said, they have hated me and they will hate you. So how will we respond in the face of persecution? If it is ever our journey to walk a path of persecution, how will we respond? For sure we will ask the question, when will this suffering end? The same question the Thessalonians asked. Now, before we address that question, I think it's also important that we can say, even though we don't currently face suffering from persecution, we all face suffering. And we know what suffering is like. We know that experience. And I don't have to tell you what kind of suffering you've been through. You know that very well. And I don't have to tell you the kind of suffering those around you in your life have faced. Generally, we think of suffering, we can put it into two categories. One, we suffer because of the fallen creation. The fallen creation that is that way, it is fallen because of the sin of mankind. God had designed the world to follow his plan of goodness and rightness And yet the sin of mankind has led to its fallen station. So we suffer because of the fallen creation when we have illness and pain and loss and grief and loneliness and lacking. And there's a tremendous amount of suffering that can be put in those categories. We also suffer at the hands of fallen people. And this would include persecution, but it would just include also just the, the evil that we each face. Maybe someone in your family has done wrong to you, someone that you have been close to, or someone that was completely unknown. So there will be indiscriminate or indifferent harm or evil, but also, sadly, intentional harm targeted against us. So we know what it means to suffer. And so if the question is, when will our suffering end? One thing we know for sure is that there is no promise that suffering will end in this life. As much as we would pray for it, as much as we would want it, as much as we would expect it, there's no promise of the end of suffering in this life. 
So then we might say, well, where is the hope? What can we hope for? Well, that is what Paul was sharing with the Thessalonians. And when we suffer, we need hope. We need hope in order to continue on. So where does that hope come from? Well, for the follower of Jesus, that hope comes from a relationship with God. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Faith in God. Faith in His person. Faith in His power. Faith in His presence. A faith that says, I am broken. I'm part of this fallen world. I am a fallen person. I have no way of restoring my relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. And I lean on Him completely for grace, forgiveness, and for a restored relationship with God. That's the beginning of our hope. Faith in God. But then Paul also described the relationship of God's people as a source of hope. That our love for each other brings encouragement The camaraderie of saying we're not suffering alone. We suffer together. We walk with each other. We give each other mutual support. We encourage each other. There's great hope in in the love for God's people. But then what Paul really puts forward as the source of our ultimate hope is a trust in the justice of God. A trust in God's ultimate deliverance of us. We see a picture of that in Revelation. One of the the best parts of Revelation, especially when we're going through a difficult time, we're suffering, is Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. This is the promise. There's no promise that suffering will end in this life. But there is the promise. That God's ultimate deliverance is waiting for us. And that deliverance includes God bringing justice. We often love to think about the attributes of God that, that we want applied to ourselves. Love, grace, forgiveness providence, guidance, his presence with us, all of those attributes and and gifts of God. We want to emphasize those. But we often don't want to emphasize other sides of God that are just as true. And in this case, that God is a God of judgment, right judgment against sin. And that, Paul says, is the focus in this passage of the source of our hope, judgment. It might seem counterintuitive. It might be why Paul had to drive this point home. 
But he's teaching the Thessalonian believers that God's judgment will be a source of their deliverance and hope. Because that judgment is going to be brought about by the power of Christ at his second coming. And vengeance will be worked on God's behalf. And Paul describes what that vengeance is like. First of all, he says it's going to be brought on those who do not know God and who do not follow the gospel of Christ. That's that vengeance, that judgment is waiting for them. And it will come with flaming fire of judgment. And it will be the penalty of eternal destruction. A rightly meted out penalty of eternal destruction which includes the exclusion from God's presence. God is bringing his judgment and it is a source of our eternal hope. In Hebrews 10, it says that, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't think, of, we don't think about God that way. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it is because of that that we can have the hope of eternal justice. So the promise of relief and deliverance and the end of suffering is not in this life, but in the coming of Jesus Christ and the entry into God's eternal kingdom. And so what do we do then? What was Paul teaching the Thessalonian believers to do? Persevere. Suffering will not end in this life. We have a hope of the ultimate end of suffering, and so we persevere. We persevere until Christ returns. But what does perseverance look like? I think this is important. Perseverance can just be a word or an idea until we see it lived out. And Paul explained what that, was, what that living out would look like. And part of it, he's pointing to the Thessalonians in their own life. He's saying, look, you're doing these things. Look, this is the perseverance you need to do. Keep living that out. And then he paints a picture of how they can grow into more of that perseverance. And so starting in verse 4, he describes steadfastness and endurance as the beginning of perseverance. Stand firm on Christ. Standing firm in a way that no matter what comes our way, we will endure. Because our eyes are not fixed on us. They're fixed on Christ. Then he says that when we do live this perseverance, God's going to do something incredible in us. Perseverance leads to us being made worthy of his calling. That's something we can't do in ourselves. We can't do enough good to be worthy of God's calling. We can't avoid enough sin. What being worthy of God's calling means is that we have our faith in Christ and we live that way. 
no matter what comes our way. He describes perseverance as being filled with resolve. Have you ever known someone that they might have been called narrow-minded, but they were singularly focused on something important to them? They were filled with resolve. They could not be swayed one way or the other. That's what our faith is like when we persevere. We're filled with resolve. We say, no matter what happens in my life or to me, I will not give up on Jesus Christ. That perseverance also works its way out in in good works of faith and of power, Paul says in verse 11. That we will continue to live in those good works. It's easy when we suffer to pull in on ourselves and say, I've, I, the only energy I have is for me. But Paul says, perseverance of faith calls us out to still be a channel for the good and for the power of God to flow through us. And then perseverance looks like glorifying the name of Jesus. Have you ever known someone that in the middle of their suffering, the name of Jesus was on their lips? That that was what they wanted to talk about. Jesus, his beauty, his sustaining power in their lives. When we persevere, we glorify the name of Jesus. And then ultimately, we are glorified in Jesus. And this is maybe in this life, among, in the eyes of those who see our testimony, but definitely the eternal glorification in Christ when we enter into his kingdom. Perseverance. Here's, here's a test or maybe, maybe a, uh, a goal for how we persevere. So when we make Jesus the highest, the highest in our life, the highest pursuit the highest source of joy, satisfaction, the highest value. Jesus, the highest relationship, the highest longing, the highest aim, the highest goal, the highest priority. When Jesus is highest in our life, we persevere. So here's a question. When Jesus is all you have, will Jesus be enough? Because when Jesus is all you want, you can suffer and not abandon your faith. Just like Corey Tin Boom. So here, here are three takeaways that we can see happening in the life of the believers in Thessalonica, and we want it to happen in our lives as well. When we participate, or we participate in the kingdom of God when we suffer along with Jesus. In a minute, we're going to have communion and think about the suffering of Jesus. Well, we're invited into that. Jesus says, when you suffer, you are suffering with me. Now think about this. What you hope for shapes what you live for. You ever thought about that? What you hope for shapes what you live for. And so when our hope is in Jesus and his return and and the justice and deliverance he's going to bring for us, 
That is what we live for. And here are some hard truths. Hard because we don't want to walk the path of persecution or suffering. But there is good along that path. Persecution often leads to the growth of the church. You see that through history. You see it happening now around the world. When believers, when churches are persecuted, faith becomes real. Faith becomes strong. Faith rises above the distractions of this life. And churches grow. And also, suffering often leads to the growth of the believer. When all the focus of our own lives changes so that all we have is Jesus, we might feel weak. We might lose sight of the things that brought us joy before. But when Jesus is all we see, all we know, all we want, we grow more than we have before. So as we finish, what are we going to do with all this? What are we going to do with this knowledge that we have hope for the end of suffering through Christ? First of all, let's pray. Let's pray for the persecuted church for the persecuted believers around the world, more believers than ever before, let's pray for them. Here are two great resources. You can uh, go to these websites and learn about persecuted church, read some of their stories, find ways to pray. First is the Voice of the Martyrs. You can find them at persecution.com. And you can go to Open Doors. OpendoorsUS.org. Go there. Learn about the persecuted church. Pray for our believers around the world. And then serve and encourage others who are suffering. There are people among us, people in your family, people in our church, people that are your neighbors. Pray for them, but also serve and encourage them. Let the love of Jesus flow through you to them. But then what about our own persecution and suffering? Prepare yourself. Make Christ the highest in your heart and your life so that when anything else is stripped away or when everything else is stripped away, you will stand firm. So let us persevere until Christ returns. Whether we live in peace or suffering, or persecution. Let us persevere. Will you pray with me? God, it is sobering to read about the persecution of the Thessalonian believers and other believers in the first century. And it's heartbreaking, Lord, to hear about the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world today. kind of persecution that is so foreign to us. But God, would you help us put our eyes on Christ? 
that whether we will ever face persecution or just the suffering of our daily lives, God, would you focus our hearts on Christ, that he would be highest. We pray this in his name. Amen.